Listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820 brings you Foundations in Faith. Join Monsignor Frank Lane as he offers insights into the readings heard at Mass. And now, Foundations in Faith with Monsignor Frank Lane. This is Father Frank Lane. We're continuing our program, Foundations in Faith. Today, we're going to look at the Holy Gospel according to St. Luke, the 12th chapter, the 13th to the 21st verse. And again, it's it's a it's a familiar it's a familiar parable for us and a familiar question for us, and it has far-reaching impact really because it deals with the whole nature of wealth within within the Christian tradition, and within the uh, the relationship with the Word of God and the experience of Jesus Christ. And so it begins with the man in the crowd saying to Jesus, "Master, tell my brother to give me a share of our inheritance." There is no indication here that this man is greedy or that this man is vindictive or in any other way. It's a typical situation. An argument over inheritance in a family is not foreign to us as a cultural phenomenon and hasn't been for a very long time. And uh, so it's a simple question. It's a simple question to adjudicate a situation, to create justice out of what this man feels to be an injustice. But Jesus is interesting, and he says, My friend, who appointed me your judge or the arbitrator of your claims? In other words, why do you bring this issue to me? Um, this is not actually what I'm all about. There's, there's um, structures within your own civil societies to take care of these kinds of things. And while there may be a moral issue involved, I don't know all the terms of the argument, and I don't know the situation that is set up, and why, in fact, the man does not have his share of the inheritance. So Jesus is simply saying, why don't you rely on the structures that are already there for you to use in order to resolve this conflict? And then he said to them, watch and be on your guard against avarice of any kind, for a man's life is not made secure by what he owns, even when he has more than he needs. And here he goes then into the main meaning and the main thrust of of this whole gospel story. And that is an inordinate desire, an inordinate dependence even, on the goods of this world um, as over and against the goods of the world to come. And this tension between our life in this world and our life in the world to come is very, very important for us. Here he casts it in the light of wealth and, and, and poverty. But it's cast also in the sense of any other kind of idolatrous reality that enters into, into our lives. That anything that becomes more important to us than eternal salvation is a distraction, and it is to us then who would do such a thing that Jesus would say, oh, oh, you fool, this very night the demand will be made for your soul. So in the parable that he goes into then, it's going to be significant, and we're going to look at some of the implications of that. Then he told them a parable. There once was a rich man who, having had a good harvest from his land, thought to himself, what am I to do? I have not enough room to store my crops. And then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll pull down my barns and build bigger ones and store all my grain and my goods in them. And I will say to my soul, my soul, you have plenty of good things laid by for many years to come. Take things easy, eat, drink, have a good time. But God said to him, you fool, this very night the demand will be made for your soul. And this hoard of yours, and this hoard of yours, 
um, whose will it be then? And so it is when a man stores up treasure for himself in place of making himself rich in the sight of God. So we have this tremendously important lesson now that we're going to look at. It's very, very easy for us to say that in Christianity, Jesus is hostile toward wealth. Well, there is nowhere in the New Testament where that where where that's the case. He never condemns wealth per se. He condemns our relationship to wealth oftentimes. And the reason that he does so is because wealth can become the sole goal of a person's life. We look at some of the multi-billionaires in our societies today and uh, and we know, for instance, that you know the acquisition of even more wealth becomes becomes a very important part of their life. Um, we see even in Congress multimillionaires, multimillionaires, um, sliding around the law for and insider trading laws and so forth. We we find it, you know, if you said it was someone who was who was poor who did that. We, we would be kind of surprised, but we're not surprised when the wealthy do that because it means they have exchanged their hope in the eternal life for their hope and their security in this world. And it's not just wealth and poverty. It's not just money that's involved in all this. It can be so many other... It can be ideologies. It can be what is most important for the human person. The most important thing for the human person ultimately is eternal life. That's the most important thing. Because while a life is, uh, well, a, a lifetime is, is for the present, a life really is forever. And when we only focus on one dimension of our existence, and that is our existential existence, our existence here and now, our earthly existence, our concrete existence, when that becomes the sum total of our, of our hopes, the sum total of our dreams, the sum total of our energy and our thoughts, um, then we have somehow or other limited ourselves as human persons. We have then, in many ways, um, reduce the value that we have as a human being. For it's only, it's only able to be evaluated over and against the values of the present age. And it does not extend into the whole idea of a whole life, a full life. It doesn't extend into the whole idea of a life that is forever. And instead focuses merely on a lifetime which is time-bound and which is the present and which is now. This becomes huge in all sorts of political ideologies as well, that focusing only on what appears to be an immediate good, we lose complete sight of the longer-lasting and the longer-lasting implications of many of the ideologies that we have. We saw that certainly arise in the 19th century with Marxist atheism, when in fact Marx, calling religion the opiate of the masses, um, saw the world all in terms of class warfare, of the have-nots against the haves, and uh, of the necessity for revolution to equalize the income, to equalize the possessions. This, the only time this was really absolutely tried, beyond now some of the arguments of the present age, was in the Soviet Union. 
And as in any kind of basically socialist society, it necessarily becomes tyrannical. And it necessarily becomes tyrannical because you must use force to limit the abilities of some, and you must use force to compensate oftentimes the inabilities of many. And that in let, instead of letting in some way, shape, or form um, the, the idea that each person seeks their own fulfillment in this life and assuring that we have a society that allows that to happen, we instead try to impose limitations or false expectations on, on the masses within the society. And so just as the Soviet Union reduced most people to, to real, in some way, penury, that uh, that there was always the oligarchs, always the ones with the dachas in the countryside, and always the ones with vast wealth, and that's still the case in 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 this in present day Russia, as it emerges from that seventy years of horror, and uh, and yet has a very difficult time overcoming its own ideological past. We find that now as part two of the American political agenda on the parts of many, many powerful people. And especially, this is interesting, and especially the ideological wealthy. Um, we find, uh, you know, a uh, 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 Bill Gates, or we find uh, people of this George Soros or somebody, using their billions of dollars to try and redefine human nature, trying to in some way, shape, or form crush the possibilities of the human person and, and realistically support the inabilities of the human person. The idea that everybody should have exactly the same is not in some way a Christian teaching, and it's not something that the Church, being deeply imbued with a knowledge and an insight into human nature, sees as possible without tyranny. Which is why throughout the 19th century and early part of the 20th century, the Church vigorously opposed socialism. It's interesting, too, that those in our society, many who call themselves Catholic, who are f fabulously wealthy, are the proponents of the ideologies of socialism and are willing to use their political power to try and create it, themselves expecting that same kind of exemption that the oligarchs of the Soviet Union expected and achieved during the reign of Stalin and so forth. So this is, this is kind of a corrective to an overemphasis on the economic realities of the world at the expense of the realities of eternal life. For what do those who use their wealth to impose their will on others expect of the living God? For they have decided to play God in this world and to take from him what he has given to all and to redistribute it according to their own ideologies and their own values and their own senses, none of which are imbued with the Christian spirit. So the Marxist movements and the Marxist indoctrination that goes on in our country today is in a way bizarre, for it is a proven failure in the world order. And as a proven failure, it shows us very much so that uh, humanity's goals, humanity's wisdom, humanity's insights are oftentimes at odds with the divine. 
To say all this is not to therefore propose a radical form of unlimited capitalism where those who are able to ascend over the powers of others and try to enslave them. Um, that was the beginning of certainly the labor unions in this country with the, with the outrageous behavior of the Rockefellers and the Harrimans and the Morgans and so forth. Um, the Rockefellers in the oil feeds um, fields and the Harrimans, for instance, and the railroads, that somehow or other having all the cards in their own hand, they chose not to share that deck with those who worked for them. And in fact, brutally sometimes suppressed any kind of any kind of uh, of of labor movement that sought some kind of justice, not equity, but justice out of the system that they worked for. It pointed out to us that we needed antitrust laws. It pointed out to us that at that time labor unions became crucial and critical. It pointed up out to us the fact that there had to be some control mechanisms on any society or it will naturally of itself become an unjust society. But justice does not mean equity. And, and, uh, and, and it therefore means that there has to be room for the movement of the human spirit. At the same time, this movement of the human spirit and human abilities and human differences have to be honored and, and cared for and nurtured. And so you have a delicate balance, which the fact that we're out of balance or were out of balance even before in the 19th century shows us what a difficult thing, what a delicate balance this tends to be. But it is not the church's job to do exactly, um, to propose how the societies are to be structured, but only to move and to teach when the societies themselves become radically unjust. And, uh, and I think that we saw probably one of the great Catholic experiments of political and economic in, uh, ideology was in Ireland after, the, after 1935 when uh, Eamon de Valera imposed upon, upon Ireland the, uh, the social teachings of uh, especially Pius XI. And uh, it was called actually vocationalism and assigned kind of an economic value to different kinds of vocations and uh, to, to marriage, to family, to this or to that. And tried, therefore, to keep a, a, a locked in um, um, just basis for the development of the society and for the protection of the agrarian element of Irish society. Well, after, after 1949, when, the, when uh, Ireland broke from Britain, um, that, uh, that this kind of proved not to be helpful and not to be useful. And uh, that, in fact, it needed to be changed in order to participate in the wider world, which, of course, made it very vulnerable to the same kind of things that happened to the rest of the world. And that is that, the, that oftentimes their political and economic societies get out of balance. And when they're out of balance, they therefore espouse injustice. And the ideology which pushes them to stay in balance is the very thing Jesus is talking about today. 
Is it the one who is going to hoard things for himself, or is it the ones... And, and Jesus doesn't indicate that the wealthy man's a bad man. It's just he's got poor judgment, and he's got poor insight. He doesn't understand what his life is all about. He thinks his life is all about acquisition of wealth. He doesn't understand that that life is actually, um, is actually about how best to use what he has to prepare himself and others to enter into eternal life. And that becomes the criteria for us. That becomes how we judge wealth and poverty in the world. Those who use it for ill, and we know, for instance, that the Gates Foundation uses it for illegitimate and inhuman population control purposes in the Southern Hemisphere, as well as trying to impose that on ourselves. We know also that many benevolent, so forth, uh, charitable institutions do the same. The Soros thing is the same thing. Let's control the society according to our vision, and we've got the money to do it. And to them, of course, Jesus says, you fool. And that eventually they must face the consequences of their tyranny and their, their economic tyranny. And uh, just like this man had to face the, uh, the, the, the uh, consequences of his economic greed and his economic idolatry. And I think that idolatry becomes a word that we perhaps don't use enough, maybe, in modern contemporary society. For to invest ourselves in political ideology rather than in the faith in Jesus Christ is an idolatrous thing to do. To place the meaning of our life in terms of dollars and cents is an idolatrous reality that limits and, and the vision that we might have or the understanding that we might have of the very purpose of our existence. We know that any system which invokes tyranny is a system that essentially is contrary to human nature. Um, for if human nature were, in, were compatible with those systems of government, with, for instance, the Soviet Union or the Marxist ideology in American and Western society today, if human nature was compatible with that, there wouldn't be the necessity of enforcing it, of using force to make it happen. That there could be, it would be the ability to be conviction, um, education, um, and, and that's another thing that we have to look at because education can be, in one way it can be the opening up of the human mind and the other way it can be pure indoctrination. And in many of our great universities and colleges today, it is simply indoctrination. And, uh, and at the expense of the authentic intellectual life. So... It's, it's, not, it's not, you know, to create, use this gospel to create a critique of, uh, of contemporary political and economic systems. But there are good examples in our own lives that, that, we, can, that we can latch on to, that we can comprehend. They're kind of modern parables about this very same issue. The issue of the rich man who said, now, you know, I can eat, drink, and be merry, for I have, I'm set for my lifetime, which lasted one night. Um, and, and so myopic are many of the ideologies of the contemporary age as well. The, the gender ideologies, the sexual ideologies, all those kinds of things. Um, somehow or other, their failure to bring a kind of real happiness, part of the reason they're so aggressive is because they're so angry.
and so unhappy and, uh, and so desperate for other people to approve what they do, even if what they do is somehow or other strange and unusual and really contrary to the whole idea of a creator god. We, we're torn by these things in modern society, but we're torn by these things in every society. We go back and we look at the horrors of the French Revolution and we try to romanticize the French Revolution today as a great blow for freedom. Um, it was the most tyrannical, most vicious thing that we've seen in, in world history in a very long time. Um, it, and it, it was... Uh, it was horrible. They set up statues of reason in the Cathedral of Notre Dame, and then they worshipped human reason, which God knows is a very bad thing to do, because human reason, as John Paul II pointed out in paragraph 22, is fides et ratio. Human reason is itself damaged by original sin, and therefore it is not the most, it is not the only reliable source. We use reason to the ability that we can, but it's a very limited ability that we have. And we end up being more and more dependent, not on ourselves and our human reason, but on the interaction and the person of God who interacts with us in, in history and in sacrament and in church. So that, um, and so we can say, what did this ideology of the French Revolution do? It absolutely ripped the soul out of a nation and became a bloodthirsty experience of hatred and viciousness. Um, did it destroy the monarchy? Sure, it destroyed the monarchy. Was the monarchy bad? I don't know for sure how bad it was under Louis XVI. It was pretty bad under Louis XIV, but under Louis XVI, I really don't know if it was all that awful. Um, it, it isn't like, you know, therefore, um, only one form of government is consistent with, with Christian teaching. That's not true either. Any form of government that is, creates justice within the society, justice in the sense of the respect for each individual human being, that it is not based on the individual needs of every person or it becomes chaos. It is based on what is known to be and experienced as that which is good for the most for the society. Sometimes that means a restriction of individual um, desires, and sometimes it, it gives full vent to those things. But in any case, this idea of investing in, in, in ideologies of hatred is storing our bonds full of grain and saying, yeah, now at last we're going to be able to impose our will on everyone. We're going to hate everyone who doesn't agree with us. We're going to go forth in anger and in vindictiveness. We're going to redefine the goals of human existence. We're going to redefine the human person. We're going to redefine what justice within a society means. And we're going to enforce it in the most tyrannical way. Language control is a huge issue, has always been a huge issue. In the French Revolution, you could no longer call someone Mr. and Mrs. You called them citizen. Um, in the Soviet Union, they were all comrade. Um, the Russian words of... of uh, meaning uh, Mr. and Mrs. Um, were kind of forbidden and only comrade was allowed. And that was in order to identify them as people of the state and not of people of a living God, not of people of a creator, not of people who were uniquely created in God's own image and likeness, and not of people who in his own image and likeness 
strive within their lives and within the societies in which they live to come to the full realization of themselves as persons and in doing so therefore to open within themselves and to allow grace and sacrament to open within themselves all the possibilities of eternal life so the day today as we go through this gospel let us listen to it one more time and let us see and understand within it what it is that the Lord is saying. He's not calling the man who wants justice in his inheritance greedy or evil, but he's using it as an example of what we should not be and shifting the emphasis from the equitable distribution of wealth to the actually the submission and the humility before the living God. And he told them the parable. There once was a rich man who, having a good harvest, had his hand from his land, thought to himself, what am I to do? I have not enough room to store my crops. And then he said, this is what I will do. I will pull down my barns and build bigger ones and store all my grain and my goods in them. And I will say to my soul, my soul, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years to come. Take things easy, eat, drink, have a good time. But God said to him, fool, this very night the demand will be made for your soul. And this hoard of yours, whose will it be then? And so it is when a man stores up treasure for himself in place of making himself rich in the sight of God. And we can see very easily then how in many ways this idea of the, of the bulging barn filled with the, with the abundant and the bumper harvest is also in some ways symbolic of other kinds of human idolatry, which we experience most dramatically today in the ideologies of our society, ideologies which have grown in hostility to the gospel of Jesus Christ, enticing and seducing many people who say they believe in Christ into idolatry themselves, into false notions of that which is most significant. To have a decent life in this world is what God would like for us. Anything that provides a decent life in this world without taking away from us that which he has also given us in our lives is somehow or other a goal of all human societies and all human governments. For any, for any who are in some way um, interested, in some way desirous of this, there is uh, a very good book by Max Weber, Weber, and it's called the spirit of Protestant, no, the spirit of capitalism, Protestant, Protestant ethic and the spirit of capitalism. And there's some pages in there that tell us what happens when we replace the desire for eternal life with the desire for earthly gain. And once again, wealth is not in itself in matters of dollars and cents. Wealth in the New Testament is a, is a symbol a symbol of all the distortions of human values and all the distortions of human life. And so today, maybe we should examine our own life and examine our own world. And today we might have this deep within ourselves to ask the Lord to keep our vision of eternal life clear in our earthly life and help us to treasure and to value those things which are of greater importance to him and greater consequences for us. Foundations in Faith is a production of listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820. Archives of Foundations in Faith are available at stgabrielradio.com.
Then